welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me today is our Chief Science Officer, Dr. Brandon Roberts, who has not made an appearance on the podcast for a while, so we are long overdue for some science talk. Today, though, we have a little bit more of a casual conversation, more of a uh, back and forth style podcast, which I think you guys are going to like because it definitely takes more of a just a casual coaching style conversation or, or theme throughout the content. And uh, it's just easy to listen to and it's easy to gather everything because we go over some specific topics and we really talk about the application of these things so that it's not just science jargon, but it's actually science-based applicable information that you can use for your training and your nutrition. So we dive into uh, how important the stretch is inside of a range of motion for hypertrophy. So we actually talk about some of this research coming out with partial range of motion versus full range of motion, as well as interset stretching. So stretching between sets or just adding pauses. So you're kind of stretching between reps why this is so beneficial for hypertrophy and how to implement it into your training. We talk about protein, specifically going over a gram per pound, so doing like a ultra high protein diet, whether that's just bro science or if there's anything from research that actually supports doing this for body composition changes. Um, and then we dive into a couple more topics that I think you're really gonna like that really just play into this whole idea of application-based fitness and nutrition. So it's all science-driven. There is research being mentioned, but we dive into this from a coaching perspective, which I really, really think you're going to enjoy. Before we get into that uh, discussion, I want to shout out to the sponsors. First and foremost, Tailored Life Apparel. This is the Tailored Life Podcast. So of course, the Tailored Life Podcast is sponsored by Tailored Life Apparel. If you want to go check out what we have left and get notified about the next drop, head over to tailoredlifeapparel.co and make sure you follow us on Instagram at Tailored Life Apparel. This podcast is also brought to you by Giant Lifting. You can head over to giantlifting.com to get all of your fitness equipment needs. Whether you have a garage gym, a CrossFit gym, or a big gym, they have most of what you need and it is at an affordable price and this equipment is not going to break or budge. You can bang this stuff up and it will last a lifetime. Also, you get 10% off because you are a listener. So use the coupon code TCM10 and save 10% on your fitness gear. Now, without any further ado, let's bring on our chief science officer, Dr. Brandon Roberts. Dr. Brandon Roberts, chief science officer of Taylor Coaching Method is back on the podcast. From what it seems like, I mean, man, it's been, uh, it seems like a year hiatus. It hasn't actually been a year, but it has been a long time since you've been on the podcast. Um, we've both been extremely busy. We've had some technical difficulties, and uh, but we've made it happen, and I'm excited to finally bring you back on on a regular basis uh, once a month to get you on here and talk science, man. Yeah, yeah, no, glad to be back. It was, you know, it feels like a long time. I was looking through our text, and I was just like, you know, it's been it's been a couple months, but um, I feel like we've both had a lot going on, been productive. You know, life is life is busy these days, so you know, give the people what they want and keep going. Yeah, absolutely. So we're gonna uh, approach this differently than we have in the past with the research reviews, where we just it's like here's a study, straight science. We dive into it. Um, of course, we're still going to take a science-based approach to this, but um, we are going to just tackle some of the topics that have been sent in over since the last time you've been on the podcast, some questions that I've got that I've touched on, but I haven't been able to dive into it from a research lens as much because I haven't had you cover the topics with us. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be really cool because there's some that are more recently um, popular, I would say, in the research or in the industry and in the evidence-based community. And we'll try to get through as many of them as we can. If not, we'll save them. Some for the next one. But uh, the first one we got here is stretch mediated hypertrophy. So we do have an article on this. So we will link this in the uh, show notes of the podcast. But essentially, really just want to pick your brain on the idea of how influential or, or just get a good idea of how influential, how important is the stretch is of a, a range of motion side exercise. Because, you know, for a long time, it was like full range of motion is by far the best thing. And then a study came out and was like, actually, partials are better if you do it in the stretched portion, which is actually very funny because if you think of every bro in the gym who does partials on like a leg press or a shrug machine or anything, it's always in the, the shortened position. It's never the lengthened stretch position. They're doing like quarter squats at the top of a leg press. Um, nobody's doing quarter squats at the bottom of a leg press. That would just be brutal, but it might actually work. So um, what is stretch media to hypertrophy? Why is it important? And uh, what should we be considering when using it in our, in our training? Yeah, yeah. So stretch mediated hypertrophy is basically when you're adding more tension to the muscle 
at, in your workout. So normally, you know, you're doing four sets of eight to 12 and you passively rest between sets. Or maybe you do something else. Maybe you superset, do a different muscle. Um, but when you do the stretch, the mediated hypertrophy, what you're doing is you're stretching in between your sets. Mm. Now, there's only three or four studies on this. Um, so, you know, we won't dive too deep in, but these all originated from, I think it was the 90s when our uh, our good friend Jose Antonio published a study where he stretched um, the wing muscles mm -hmm. of like birds, right? And so that's where it all started, like way back, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So nowadays, there, there's a series of studies and, and they were trying to figure out, and there's this one lab in Tampa, Dr. D'Souza, very good friend, um, very good scientist. They're trying to figure out when are, when and how do we use this, right? Um, so at first they, they thought, well, maybe we should just passively stretch the muscle. So you do a bench press and you kind of just, you know, put your arm up and kind of do that fly motion and let it, let it pull that, that chest wide. And that didn't seem to really do much. Um, but this most recent study they did, and this is where we're getting to, you know, where the evidence may be shifting a bit is instead of like that passive stretching, they did weighted stretching. And so they were doing flies and then they would have the people hold the flies at a lowered weight. I think it was like 20, 15% of the weight um, for 30 seconds in between sets. And they would rest for like 90 seconds total. So it's not like you're gassing all your energy in between sets because mm -hmm. that's the that's a concern, right? And that's where I think we have to be careful in how we use um, stretching in our sets is you don't want it to affect your overall volume or the weight you can lift, right? Because if we're doing that, you're going to work out less and the benefits are either going to disappear or they're actually going to be detrimental. Um, so when we think about using this in a set, or using this in a couple sets for different muscles, what appears to be kind of the best way to do that is do it for a short amount of time, so about 30 seconds, and do it at a lower weight. Um, and now it it does appear to be muscle-specific, um, so that's where the, there's probably going to be a couple more studies to figure that out exactly. The chest seems to be a good one. Um, so that's the, the basics of the stretch mediated hypertrophy research um, and how you would use it. Now, when you first started talking, you, you said, you know, range of motion, right? So you have this stretch mediated hypertrophy and then you have range of motion and they're kind of together because they're both about tension, right? And when the muscle adapts, the muscle adapts at its weakest point first. So when you're doing those elongated contractions, your muscle is in a weaker state, right? Because there's actually less actin and myosin overlapping. And so it's going to work better. There's like one study on this. So, you know, better is kind of hypothetical right now. Um, compared to that shortened where every all your myosin and actin are overlapping, right? So you're stronger, you're better. But when you lengthen things out, you have less contractile proteins overlapping. So that's kind of the, the basics of it. Um, I think I answered everything. Yeah, so I, I think in uh, in I made the mistake of almost uh, basically when I was thinking stretch mediated hypertrophy, I was looking at stretch mediated hypertrophy as um, more of like stretching in between reps. So like let's say adding a long deep stretch pause in between dumbbell bench press for however many seconds versus interset stretching, which would be what I think stretch mediated hypertrophy research is actually based on what, based on what you just said, you know, stretching in between sets. Um, so when we consider full range of motion, really all we're, we're really talking about is just, uh, emphasizing the lengthened portion of a range of motion. Um, and that's really what I'm talking about here as being more hypertrophic. Now there is a lot of cool research on the interset stretching as well. Um, I was just miss, I was misterming it. I guess that would, that was term, I was calling it the wrong thing, but when we're looking at uh, increasing the stretch 
portion of a movement, obviously, and like you said, there's going to be certain exercises that this works better with. Um, I would gather really just anything that you can actually cause more of a stretch with without any like joint issues or anything. Cause you know, like for example, um, a bicep curl, you know, you can get in like a certain position where you're, you've got your shoulder extended, you're on an incline bench, you're, you turn to a neutral grip, you're trying to stretch that bicep, but you can only do so much before you really start hurting your elbows. Like, let's be honest versus uh, a seated leg curl. I know there was a research study on this. We can sit up and do it, or we can lean forward while we do it. And that's going to cause a bigger stretch because we're pulling our hamstrings more or a uh, hip. Uh, I'm sorry, a, a, a leg extension where you actually lean back and you um, scoot your butt forward, essentially, so your hip flexors aren't stretched as much. We're probably causing a little bit more lengthened position in the quads because we're leaning back as we do those leg extensions. And I believe there was a study way back showing um, they did them like laying down, basically, on the leg extension, and it, it actually improved hypertrophy. Um, you know, the lats are probably a good one. The chest is probably a good one. So there's certain ones that it's just easier to do um, and therefore research. But as far as, like, when we look at a range of motion um, – is that accurate to stay like the, for example, the bottom range. So if you were doing a half rep, if you were doing that half rep in the bottom range of a dumbbell bench press or a chest fly or anything where your pec is actually stretching, that's going to be more hypertrophic than doing a half rep in the top portion where you're contracting more. Even if that contraction, you feel that pump more because you're squeezing your muscle, right? Would that be accurate to say? Yeah. And that, that goes back to the, the idea that, your muscle is going to adapt it better because it doesn't want to be weak, right? Mm-hmm. So in that eccentric, you're stretched and your muscle's weaker, right? So it's like, oh no, this bar could crush me. It's not actually going to crush me, but your muscle's like, oh no. Um, so I think that lends to you know the leg press, the bench press, or the dumbbell press that you're mentioning. The other one that I I saw recently in a study um, was the leg curl, like the laying leg curl mm. um, versus, I think there was a, a seated leg curl, right? So you have the hamstrings hitting two different ways. Um, and that stretch position, you know, the lying leg curl seemed to work a little better. Um, and again, you have this research appearing now where certain ranges of motion target certain parts of your muscle. And that's because your muscle doesn't always run all the way across, like from connection to insertion or origin to insertion, right? So like you have muscles that are joined in your biceps, for example, that are both contracting and they're doing the same thing, but they're kind of two different muscles, cells, so then you can focus on one, right, and make it bigger using a certain range of motion. Um, now that, again, that area of research is kind of newer, so it's hard to say exactly, but it's definitely not going to hurt um, to do, you know, some advanced work in an elongated position, especially for hard to grow muscles like your legs, your biceps. I mean, your chest is kind of hard to grow, but most people have enough volume there. Um, so that's how I would kind of use it. I haven't personally put, started putting it into my workouts yet um, just because I don't think I need it right now. But when I try to kick it up a notch, go through a, you know, a chest specialization cycle or a bicep or arms or legs or something, that's where I will go ahead and say, okay, we're going to increase the volume. We're going to increase the intensity again. And then we're going to add some advanced movements, which I think we have a couple of blogs about that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, intensification methods. Um there's actually one in those that is a extended set, partial range of motion, dumbbell bench press. So after you get done, go to the bottom of that range of motion and sit in that bottom portion until you basically hit failure or really close to failure. Um, you should be fatigued to the point you can't hit a full rep, but you can do a bunch of partials in the bottom range, which is still beneficial. Now, like you said earlier, we don't do that set one. We do that at the last set on, t- on purpose because otherwise the rest of your chest work for that day is probably not going to go well. Um, Okay, so would this, uh, I know there's not much research on this based on what you just said, but I always trust your opinion to kind of think of it and like, oh, there's there's some potential there. Um, does this give us more hope for, like for a long time, there was, you know, there's a lot of people who still promote this and there's some people who just never believed it. There's some people who are all about it. Um, I've always wondered, and I think it kind of depends on the muscle, but like, for example, like uh, targeting your lower lat or your upper pec. And so, that used to be a thing. And then for a while people were like, no, you just, you know, you hit a muscle, you hit a muscle, like you just more volume or more intensity, whatever. 
Um, but there's a lot of people who still believe in positioning certain ways, using cer- certain angles or rowing or pulling from a certain way to hit your lower lat, let's say. Um, and you know, there's sometimes where I do things and I'm like, I do feel it more in my lower lat. So does this give us more evidence and hope that there might be a way to isolate even portions of a certain muscle by just tweaking ranges of motion or emphasizing certain, like the stretch versus shortening or anything like that? Yeah, I, th- I think there's there's starting to be a glimmer of hope of, okay, it's not just go do a lat pull down. It's, hey, let's do a neutral lat pull down. Let's make sure my feet are situated right. My angle, I've got a little arch in my back. I'm pulling, you know, straight down and not towards like my chest. So I think based on just the the past couple of years of research, we're starting to figure out the nuances, right? And it's really hard, like from a put the scientist hat on for a second, right? So to figure out this question, what we would have to do, let's use lats, right? Is have someone come in trained, it would be harder to find, but let's say we take a good intermediate trained person and we give them two different grips and then we look at their lats and see if they grow differently. And like, nobody's really gonna do that, but we're getting closer to doing that because we're we're needing to figure that out now. So I think maybe not exa- that exact experiment um, will happen, but something similar will happen in the next couple of years. Love it. Love it. Um, okay. I think that tackles that for the most part, I guess the, the last thing I would say with talking about the stretch, uh, using stretching for uh hypertrophy is just like a couple things to bang out real quick is number one, it has to be loaded, correct? Like you can't go, you're not going to go build a bunch of muscle by doing yoga, right? Like after you hit a, a very low level of trained, right? You're, you're going to need to do some load. Okay. Um, so it's got to be loaded. Um, I don't think this takes full precedence over effort or total volume. Um, and what I mean by that is obviously you have to do, you have to have volume in order to have any work or tension applied to the muscle. Um, but you shouldn't use this at the expense of lowering your intensity or your effort. Like I know when I use this with my clients and I have been using it quite a bit, honestly, and I, I do find it works pretty well. It's much more of a addition to the main components. So I'm still making sure that we're like, okay, if we're going to use this on the chest, we're still getting our like main pressing movement that we're overloading, um, just focusing on quality reps with heavy loads and trying to progress strength in that movement in this rep range. Then we have an accessory exercise or an isolation exercise for that same muscle. We're going to add in some kind of stretch component. It could be uh, we're doing flies, but instead of just doing 15 reps, you're doing a two second pause in the stretch position on every rep, or you're adding an extended set at the last set or something like that. It's, it's a, a small addition to, you know, it just adds that little bit. Um, and, but again, I, and the reason I'm emphasizing this is because you don't want it to just take over your training where you're just doing, um, and you shouldn't do, and I would say even that is probably more beneficial, um, from what I've seen and what I would assume based on what the research is saying, than doing much interset stretching, just because I think interset stretching can fatigue you a little bit more between sets and lower the load. Whereas taking a one to two second pause to just emphasize that stretch under tension and load is just, it's not going to bring down your performance too much. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I really like um, programs that are set up to where you have a, like you just said, you have a, a bench press or something meaty, right? That you're like, we can measure progress with this. This is our meat. And then we're going to go behind it and try to get a little more specific and really target either certain parts of the muscle, certain rep ranges, intensity, you know, use some of those advanced techniques that we like. Um, so I think this is just another tool in your toolbox of, all right, like you said, we're not going to do a full stretch workout that's a little silly mm-hmm. um but especially on the last set of a of a addition, uh, accessory exercise or the last two sets like why not like throw it in there i think you could hit some weakness weaknesses that you have not hit before in those different angles or different stretch components um that's just going to make you you know bigger faster stronger whatever you're aiming for yeah um i, I would uh it's funny because i i remember i, I want to say the in classic mountain dog title, um, the ebook was called brutality of mountain dog training. And it was, uh, from John Meadows. And I, and this is, I mean, this is probably almost a decade ago. Like, this is a long time ago when this book came out and, uh, he had a very specific way of doing things. Um, and I, I kind of piggybacked off it and kind of tweaked it in my own way, but it was very much so focusing on like overload, uh, the pump and then the stretch and the way I've like kind of tweaked it 
for my own, I do this now based on what the research shows is like, I have one movement. So if we're hitting the chest on this one day and we're, let's say doing nine total sets, um, or even eight total sets, we have like three or four sets of like bench press overload. The, the goal is just create as much tension on the chest and overload from a load perspective. You know, maybe you're in the five to 10 rep range. You're trying to progress just heavy lifting overload right there. Then you go into your first accessory. Maybe it is a, um, a chest fly or a, a dumbbell incline press or some kind of other chest isolation exercise. And we're in that like 15 to 25 rep range where it's just a lot of cell swelling, metabolite accumulation, just the metabolic fatigue aspect, getting a pump, feeling the burn. And then you go into your last exercise, which might be a stretch-based movement. And it is a, uh, a pullover, a deficit push-up, a chest fly, something where we're emphasizing that stretch. Maybe we just do a couple sets and we're doing anywhere between 5 to 15 reps, but we're just trying to get a really good stretch on the muscle every rep, every set. And we hit this overload, this metabolic fatigue, and then this stretch. You know, And he always did that. And I always felt like he, he always had a good knack of like being ahead. Like I feel like he would do bro stuff that would end up getting proven – correct by research, um, mm-hmm. which is why I liked his, his stuff so much. Cause he still had that fun bro bodybuilding esque to him. Um, but it's a good way of looking at this. You know, we throw the stretch at the end because that's going to be, you know, that the breakdown, the biggest centrics holds, and you're not going to be able to train heavy after that. Um, and it, it is pretty gnarly after a, a pretty decent pump, you know, um, one of my favorites is doing like a leg extension and then following that up with an, a reverse Nordic curl, where you just get a brutal stretch in your quads and just do a couple sets of it, it is absolutely horrendous. But yeah. I think it works. Like, it's really good. It's fun, and it and it's it's kind of hitting all these components. So um, just a little example application of and fun way to, to do it. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, or, but um, I wanted to throw that out yeah, there. Yeah, so the, the Mountain Dog was ahead of his time for sure. There's a couple old school guys who were like, oh, no, yeah. Like, we're, we're figuring, we're testing their, what they were doing to figure out if it worked or not. And And more often than not, it does work. It's just circumstantial. Mm-hmm. Um, but the metabolic stress, muscle tension, and then muscle damage are your three like big indicators for growing muscle. Muscle damage doesn't seem to be as important anymore, but it's still pretty important. So you know, hitting, like you said, all three of those with different exercises, I think that's the safest bet to get the like most bang for your buck. You know? Yeah, I think it's. I think the muscle damage thing's funny. I see a lot of people argue about that and. When I'm watching and reading, from what I get from it, it's almost like maybe muscle damage isn't required. Like it's not causing growth. But everything you have to do in order to cause growth is going to eventually cause muscle damage if you do it right. You know, and if you're not getting any muscle damage or soreness, you're probably not doing it hard enough. Like, so yeah, it's just kind of do for the course. I really want to do a study when maybe it's maybe one of our listeners will do this for me, where you you take two groups and one of they do the exact same thing, but one of the groups does this huge like muscle damaging bout of exercise and then goes to like normal training, like completely normal, and the other one doesn't. And I want to see who grows more muscle after like twelve weeks or something. Mm-hmm. Like just say, does it matter? Because you know satellite cells incorporate into muscle and they get bigger faster. So. Anyway, there's some definitely room for science there, which yeah. is pretty cool. Wouldn't it be nice if we had unlimited time and money to just yes, do please. any study <laughs> we want? Uh, all right. The next topic is high-protein intakes for recomp. Um, and the reason I put this one here is because I've had a lot of conversations with people over the years of whether or not you should be following a high-protein diet. And when I say high-protein diet, I don't mean the obvious – 0.8 grams per pound, you know, like the, yes, like you need to eat that. That's, that's well-established. Uh, most research would, researchers would agree, like you could probably bump that up to a gram per pound safely, unless you're obese or have a lot of weight to lose. Maybe you go off your goal weight, but like in general, 0.8 to one gram per pound is pretty safe. What I mean by high protein is more of like 1.1, anywhere above a gram per pound, 1.1, 1.2, all the way up to 1.5 grams per pound. Um, and the reason I say this is because there's no research to say that there's any benefit to it. Um, Dr. Jose Antonio has a few studies that show it didn't really cause any fat accumulation. There's some people who argue like if you overeat anything, it has to be able to store its fat. And there's some people that argue like even Lane Norton talks a lot about, um, he doesn't believe there's like really a storage component for it or a way for it to store because we don't see it. I mean, two grams per pound in some of these studies for long periods of time and no fat, sometimes fat loss which is probably just the thermic effect. And these people complain about like um, sweating through the night and stuff like that. So it makes sense. Um, but inside of Alan Aragon's 
new book, uh, Flexible Dieting, which we had him on the podcast for. I've read it. I've recommended it to team. It's a really, really good book. Um, and Chris Barricat has uh, multiple research studies now on recomposition, and both of them recommend doing this. And uh, Chris Barricat even says one of the most common factors amongst the studies and the subjects they've seen is always like going above the normal high-protein diet. And nobody knows exactly why. Um, so it's something curious. I've used it many times successfully with clients. I've also used it as a way to just, Hey, like, let's just bump it up to just help with hunger because you're in a deficit and it's the most satiating nutrient. And then I listened to this podcast with Eric Helms, where he's claiming that he doesn't believe it actually has long-term effects on satiety. And it was, it was a good podcast and it was a good, um, takeaway from the research. I don't believe he, I don't know if he did the research. I think it was just in his research review. And I listened in, and maybe that's where I saw it, mass, not a podcast, but like talking about, they really don't have any evidence to prove that it is uh, a nutrient that's going to have higher rates of satiety long-term. Most of the studies just show eight weeks or so, which he's saying could mean that it's not a long-term thing. I also think it means like, well, we also can't say that it's not because if the studies are only eight weeks, we can't say either or. Um, So then it begs the question, like, is it is it just a, a factor of like when people recomp, they bump protein way up, they're less hungry and they don't overeat and therefore their calories are just more in check and that's why we see this recomp or is there something magical going on or is that, you know, just a temporary thing and we should have periods of time with high protein intake. So really just kind of want to get your general talk on uh, thoughts now. At first it was just for recomp but now just in general, like what is the application of going above one gram per pound and do you see any of this recomp evidence supporting this um, other than just the anecdotal stuff we see from tons of bodybuilders doing it. Yeah. So a um, couple, couple fun conversations. Um, so Chris's initial body recomp paper, I was the, one of the main peer reviewers on. And if you look at the literature and I, I, I hope he's not listening because I gave him some shit, like the reviewer comments for this one, <laughs> the most of the people who recomp are either be trained or untrained, right? So if you fit those two categories, like yes, eat but eat a lot of protein, you're gonna gain some muscle back that you lost. You're probably not gonna put on fat. You could even lose some because maybe you hadn't really been doing cardio and now you are. Um, or maybe you're an athlete who had an off season and then you're coming back, right? Um, so for like those situations, the untrained, so newbie, or the detrained, um, there does seem to be a like magical effect of you now have the fuel to regain the muscle you lost or gain the muscle that you are capable of gaining. And there is a satiety effect, at least acutely. And so when um, Eric Helms and Trexler and I were writing our um, review paper on nutrition for physique athletes, we talked about this. And it was kind of wishy-washy. If you look at the data, like acutely... Yeah, it's pretty convincing. Eat um, 500 calories in protein. Eat 500 calories in carbs. Like the the protein's going to win for satiety. Long term, again, like you said, it's not so sure. But I think, based on the biochemical side, if we overeat protein, what happens is it gets urinated out. Right, the nitrogen comes off, gets converted to urea, goes out through the urine. So it's not really or easily utilized to store fat, can't really use it as glycogen, so you just kind of dump it. Um, so that's why I would say it's it's somewhat magical. Um, so you, not to, not to cut you off. Do you think people yeah. claim that? Because even the people that claim this, I do really respect. I think they're intelligent. Do you think they? Um, and it could be just them making sure people don't do stupid shit and eat ungodly amounts of protein. But yeah. do you think that they claim there has to be some way to store? as fat because it's a calorie is a cal you know, no matter what. Um, and we just, we just don't know what that limit is because there's no study on somebody eating three to four times their body weight in protein. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's part of it is, you know, we don't have the hard science, like the biochemistry, which most biochemistry we pretty much have figured out. Um, at least when it comes to this basic nutrition stuff. Um, so it's, it's hard to, create new lipids, right? So if it's hard to, so if you're overeating on protein or you're just eating a lot of protein and, and you know, you're 
carbs are moderate and your fats low or moderate, whatever. Um, so what your body's doing is just your body's saying, okay, I'm going to use this to grow muscle as much as I can. The rest of it, it's really hard for me to convert to anything else. So it's kind of more efficient for me to dump this out. Um, and my alternate options of like using it to make fat cells, well, it's really, really hard it's called de novo lipogenesis. It's really hard to do that. The The easiest way to do that is to eat fat. Like eat fat becomes fat easier. Kind of makes sense. Um, and that's simplified, of course. So yeah, I think there's some, some concepts that are so deep in the biochemistry that it's hard to explain. Um, and honestly, I'd probably have to whip out my biochemistry textbook and really look at it again to know like, what are we missing? Is that kind of why, like, the analogy of, uh, you know, like, obviously that would mean fats are uh, easier to store uh, as fat than carbs. It's not the whole picture, but, like, there's a good analogy from Martin McDonald. He has the cup, and I think there's, like, sand in the bottom is protein, and then he pours water in it, and that's carbs, and he pours oil in it, and that's fat, and the oil rises to the top. And if he pours more water in it, which would be carbs, the oil still is the thing that spills out. So it's not it, – it, it's because – the carbs are what cause you to overeat, but the fat's going to store because it's easier to store kind of thing. Regardless, it's still, yeah, yeah. if you overeat calories, that's causing you to gain fat. But what is being stored as fat might be the fat, not the carbs. doesn't solve the problem, but. Right. Yeah, 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 definitely. And that's a great way. That's like a, a very nice way to look at it and explain it to people. Um, because, you know, your carbs go to your glycogen, they go to your blood sugar, you use them faster, but the fat, like. I mean, we're using fat right now just sitting here, but if we had some carbs, we'd probably use that too in addition to the fat. So it's not like an on-off switch, which most people think it is, but it's not. Yeah, like most things, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty complex. <laughs> um, okay, so with all that being said, do you think there is a, uh, even if you can't prove it, do you think there's any place for high-protein diets when it comes to um, body composition changes outside of just satiety. So like, let's say probably, but maybe not hundred percent conclusive. If we have a higher protein intake while trying to diet for body composition changes, we're probably going to adhere better to diet simply because we're more full and satiated. So we don't feel like we're dieting as much. Therefore we're probably not going to overeat, right? We're going to adhere to the diet outside of that. Is there any physiological reason that you would assume going above one gram per pound would cause better recomp? So, I think, and this is a, a kind of a, a, a gamble, right? I think the risk of it helping is worth the higher protein. Now, what the, that is exactly, you know, one one point two five grams per pound or something. Like, yes, there's a limit, and I don't know where it is. Um, and I'm still thinking in grams per kilogram. So if 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 you're thinking in grams per kilogram, it's probably like 2.5 grams per kilogram, which is I guess 1.25. Yeah, that's about right ish. Um, anyway, so I think it's a it's worthwhile, right? I don't think it's going to hurt you. Um, what you may see, and actually, coaches, if you're listening, this is this is what happens like at least once a week. So someone will email me blood work, and their um, creatinine and their nitrogen and their bun will all be high. And I'm like, how much protein are they eating? And they're like, well, they're eating a lot. I'm like, okay. And they probably just worked out, right? They're like, well, yeah, I mean, it's been a couple of days. So you get blood work back and you, if you're eating a high protein diet and doing resistance training, like the, some of the liver markers are just high and you're like, well, uh-oh, right? So that's another aspect of, there's probably a limit to where it may actually be detrimental long-term, but we don't know what that is, but it's really high. Um, some of the Antonio studies are like, I want to say he was like almost two grams. Yeah. He was two grams per pound mm -hmm. of like body weight. Yeah. Yeah. And like, again, healthy, you're probably fine. Um, but don't be surprised if it shows up in your blood work. Mm -hmm. The other thing to add there too is um, a few things for context for people. He's talking about our coaches on our staff when we get blood work from, um, uh, from clients. And this is one of the benefits of having a, a doctor, a PhD on your staff <laughs> because we can help yeah. our clients. Um, but the, uh, the, this is also to show people who are like, uh, I, I get this question all the time. Like, is it okay to have two scoops of protein per day or is that too much? I'm like, I mean, 
It's not going to fill you up as much as chicken will, but yeah, go for it. This is a good example because when Dr. Jose Antonio had people eating two grams per pound every day for a year, they were drinking a lot of whey protein. Trust me. Like yes. that's the only way they were getting it done. Um, and there was also no kidney issues. There was no blood work issues. There was no like gut health issues. I get that one all the time. Like, isn't protein bad for your gut? It's like, there's no research to support that. Um, but uh, I think that's a fair, a fair thing to say. And I, I would also say like, I know for me in practical application, like um, I say one to 1.5 when I'm doing 1.5 grams per pound, it's, I have like a 105 pound female, you know? Mm-hmm. So it just yeah. does, it's just not the same. It's not like me eating a 1.5 at 170 pounds is way different than a 105 pound person eating 1.5. Um, I hang out around like 1.1, 1.2. If I like, mm-hmm. you know, really at any stage just because I like eating protein. But um, what I like about it too is, you know, if we're, if we're really trying to get into the weeds and maximize muscle protein synthesis throughout the day, you know, they say three to five meals. So let's say probably four to five meals is most optimal. Um, mm-hmm. If we know based on body weight, depending on where you're at, you know, at least 20 grams, but like for somebody who is, you know, I would say anywhere between 150 to 225 pounds, let's say, you're probably going to be closer to 30, 40 grams of protein to really maximize that person feeding. And you're spreading that out between four to five meals. There, if you're doing that with uh, protein sources that are really rich in the right amino acid spectrum, you're probably going to be eating a little bit above a gram per pound because at that point we have to somewhat exclude all the protein you're getting from pro- potatoes and uh, whole wheat uh, grains and, and um, vegetables and stuff like that. Um, I still think it's way like I'm not telling people don't track those. Like you just track your total protein, but you do hit uh, just above one gram because when you do, you're definitely getting enough, uh, dare I say, anabolic protein per meal. It's such a cheesy bro word to say, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think it's yeah. probably a safer bet if we want to like, you know, if we're talking about somebody who's more advanced and who, who really wants to kind of squeeze all the, the, the juice out of the lemon. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, again, it's, it's about that risk to reward. It's like, are you, a, are you trying to eke everything out? Are you like, maybe not a bodybuilder, but you really care about your physique and you're trying to gain every pound of muscle you can every year for a decade, then yeah, like you're going to want to be up there. Um, the, I think one of the things I often tell people is, so you're, you're spot on with that four to five meals a day. So four to five meals a day, 40 grams of protein per meal for the average male. Like again, I'm we're about the same weight. Um, yeah, you're, you're at a gram per pound or more. Um, and that is like prime. You're like, okay, I'm not missing anything. Mm-hmm. I got four meals, 50 grams a meal. There's no way I'm not anabolic. Right. Yep. And that's worth it. Cause it doesn't really cost that much. Like sometimes it does, but you know, you can be strategic. You learn how to eat around that. Um, the, the other thing that we kind of touched on a little bit is that's at like maintenance, right? When we go into deficits, well, then you have this satiety effect, which we did talk about, but then you, I mean, honestly, it's, it's safer, like from a physique standpoint, not necessarily overall health standpoint, from a physique standpoint to really push your protein up. I mean, 1.5, 1.6, like if, that, if that's what it takes and you're still losing weight, the chance of you losing muscle decreases. It's it's pretty low if you're training right anyway. Um, and then you're not super lean. Um, but yeah, like when you're dieting, like push that up. If you're just maintenance and you're like, hey, I can do some cardio and maybe recomp a little bit, then yeah, like 1.1, 1.2 is probably fine. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, like you said, like, the there's no risk so it's like might as well be safe and it's not very difficult i think it's different when we go um all right you want to squeeze everything out you need to train at exactly 4 15 p.m you need to time this meal two hours and 30 minutes right before that like no stop that's ridiculous two three whatever hours you know you're fine yeah um but bumping up protein a little bit like i eat about 200 grams every day and i'm 170 pounds it's like hitting that um and again like i so i just had a call with uh Ariel on our team's husband, um, both of them want to go pro, uh, bikini and physique, uh, bodybuilding, natural bodybuilding for him. And, uh, and so I do her training and, um, he just got done with the show, did really well, but he wants to, you know, he's spending a solid year plus just, I think he's actually not going to compete again until 20, the end of 2024, I think he said, but I got on a call with him. I'm going to help him with his programming to make sure that he's doing all the right things. And this is kind of the same conversation we were talking about. It's like, you know, there's uh, certain days where he like can't get to a meal too quickly. So it's like, hey, what I want you to do post training is, you know, do three to five minutes of deep breathing. You know, we're going to get you in parasympathetic mode, have a whey protein shake, like 
he'd probably be fine if he waited the two hours to get to a meal. But I'm like, dude, we're not, you want to go pro? We're not taking any risk. Like that's just, and it's not going to kill you to have a protein shake. Like you're fine, you know? Um, but all right. Next topic is lean bulking. Um, again, we have a, uh, a blog on this. We basically have a blog on everything. So go to the blog if you want to read this <laughs> stuff. Um, but I did one on how to lean bulk uh, not too long ago. And so basically the question I always get around this though is um, because I think in the blog and, and usually I'm very vague with my answers because it's just, it depends. But um, I'm going to let you tell us it depends in your own way. Um, how many calories is actually necessary to build muscle at the proper rate of gain is the thing we want to talk about. Now, um, I think that, you know, lean gaining, main gaining, lean bulk, like there's all these terms. At the end of the day, like I think uh, lean bulking really is just to me, it basically means like we're trying to build muscle at a slow and steady pace to where we're either A, not gaining any fat or B, if you're more advanced and we have to push a little bit more, you're just gaining very minimal fat, right? And we're just trying to really strictly build muscle because you're patient and you don't mind going the slow route. Um, but the question I always get is, is like, how much weight should we be gaining per week, per month? Um, is it linear? Does it fluctuate? You know, like it's easy for us to say 0.5 to 1% of body weight loss per week in a fat loss phase. But I've seen people in gaining phase where it's like, first month we gain eight pounds. It's like, boom. And then it's like two pounds next month. And it's like snail pace. Cause sometimes it just fluctuates like that. Other people, it is a very slow and steady pace, but I think this is where people get kind of finicky. And they're always like the question I get from every guy I ever take through a gaining phase. Am I gaining too fast? Am I putting on too much muscle or too much fat too quick? And I understand cause I've been there, but usually I give them the answer. No, obviously. Um, what is your opinion? Like how, like what is the right rate of gain if we're trying to just lean bulk? Yeah. Okay. So, and is there even any research on this? So there's, uh, there's like, there's a couple things I'll touch on. So there's a good paper. It's a review paper, and it kind of stems from the overfeeding literature. Um, and I'm dropping the name of who who's on it, but um, Brad Dieter is on it, I think, and Helms is probably on it too. Um, but basically, they're like, you want to be in a 250 to 500 calorie surplus, right? Independent of like body weight. And so that works for like most dudes, like bros. It, it works. Like it works pretty well. Um, and depending on how much fat you want to gain and how your body responds to dieting and bulking and whatever, like your other activity or steps, your, your cardio, you know, um, and how you're adjusting those that can be about right. So I, I generally tell people calorically, and again, it's mostly bros who, who want to really gain um, some small female physique, females do too. Uh, 250 to 750 calories surplus per day is your is your left and right limits, right? So stay in there somewhere. If you want to minimize your fat gain, go for 250 calories, right? That's about right. It's about a 10, 10% surplus for... Um, most people, maybe 15, if you're a little bit bigger. For females, you could just go 10%. You know, they most of the females that I've worked with over the years have like their average caloric intake at maintenance is like 1,400, 1,600, somewhere in there. So, you know, 10%, 150 calories, maybe 15% for them. Um, so, in terms, so in terms of percentage, you want to be overfeeding. Um, that's kind of the first thing we have to figure out. Uh, and we talked about, we just talked about overfeeding with protein might be more beneficial in terms of rate of gain. Now I would say if you can gain a 0.25% of weight per week linearly, that's the best bet. But like you said, that's not really realistic. Um, it's easier to do that when dieting, when you're like, hey, lose 1% body weight per week because it, it's just you're losing fat. There may be some fluctuations. There's not a lot going on. When you're bulking, you're eating more food and it's sitting in your stomach and you're eating different things than when you're dieting generally because you're trying to get in more calories. Um, maybe not if you're at 250 calorie surplus. But anyway... Ideal world, it's linear. Realistically, it's probably not going to be linear, and it's probably not going to be the same percentage of muscle and fat. You know, if you're if you've been dieting, you come to maintenance, and you're like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean bulk. I want to gain five pounds in five months. Keep it easy. So a pound a month. That's 
that's pretty nice. Mm -hmm. Like if you can hit that, that looks pretty on a graph and you feel probably good. Your performance is probably up. Um, you're probably gaining mostly muscle, probably like 60 to 70% muscle. Um, whereas if you gained two pounds a month, maybe you're down in the like 40 to 50% muscle. Um, so it's again, kind of like we talked about earlier, the risk reward ratio are you going to compete next year do you have a two-year cycle off or what are your goals um and i encourage people to be in a surplus or at maintenance more than they're in a deficit just in life like i wish someone had come to me when i was like 18 and been like bro stop dieting just eat and work out you'll be fine (laughs) it's like when you're 30 you'll be fine you'll have lots of muscle you'll be fine um but that's not like our culture, right? It's like, we want to be lean. We want to be big. We want to look good all the time. Um, and then we want to optimize everything, enhance our, our build, our, our muscle the best way we can. Um, and sadly it's not, there's like not really any research at all on that, um, on lean bulking, um, to really guide us. So we have to go off of not so great research. Um, and then anecdote and how our body responds to things. Um, the last thing I'll mention is we do have a study underway that will hopefully help us figure this out. Um, so Helms and I and um, James Krieger and a couple other people in New Zealand um, put together a study where we we're doing um, two, so it's three groups, one's a maintenance group, but we're comparing 5% caloric surplus to 15%. So that kind of like low range and then that what I call like more normal is what I would recommend, 15%, um, to see how much muscle to fat do we gain over 12 weeks of training, right? And so studies like that will really help guide us in what we're trying to figure out of, should I freak out if I gain five pounds in a month? Maybe. I mean, how, how much fat do you have on you? If you've been at maintenance forever or dieting, probably not. But if you like just increase your calories, 250 calories a day, and you gave five pounds in a month, well, maybe you do need to turn it down or maybe you just need to track better. You know, it kind of just depends. Yeah, I think there's a, I mean, that was one of the things, I'm glad that that's going to come out because one of the things I've always wondered is like, there's people that argue for um, going a bit faster because it's just easier to see the progress, but also like they, some people claim that like, if you just get into surplus and you put a little fat on, you're going to lift heavier, build more muscle faster. And I don't know if there's any research to support that. Cause to me, I'm like, well, what would having fat on your body, extra fat on your body, or even just the act of eating do to build muscle outside of recover from training? Like the stimulus of training is what builds muscle. So unless you adding fat helps you train harder, which I know for me, it doesn't like if I put on fat too quickly, I just feel lethargic. But um, that'll be interesting to see because then I think it'll kind of really show us, you know, well, what is, what matters most, you know, as far as that rate of gain. A um, couple things that you mentioned that uh, I think people, one is just, I, I want to say because I think people probably heard the number and they're like, what? When you said 14 to 1600. And I think people always think like, that's so low. Unless you're a CrossFit athlete or something crazy, like that's a very normal gen pop physique athlete style like person maintenance intake as a female who is a, like a, a leaner body weight, like a healthy body weight. Um, so I think a lot of people inflate calories and think they need to reverse crazy up that you don't. Um, I also think that I agree. I think that people try too hard to focus on dieting too long. I do think there's value in gen pop people, um, not literally getting shredded, but like going into it, getting as lean as you fucking can. And then reverse out of that and put a little bit of weight back on because if you get really, really lean, you'll see that. It's very inspiring. It's a, it's It gets you in. It's motivating. It's, it creates discipline. And then you gain a little bit and you just hover over that. That's actually a really lean, healthy place to be where you can just now productively get stronger over time. And if you want to build muscle, you could build muscle and you won't be like that while you do it, um, which is why we periodize these things. But uh, I wanted to point that out. And then... Um, the other thing I was going to say is just that <clears throat> that probably will disappoint people is a lot of times I find that because I agree, I think like not only do I think people need to, to diet less, um, I think that most people underestimate how much time you need to spend trying to gain muscle, whether you're in a very small surplus, big surplus, whatever, your body's not going to build muscle super quickly unless you're brand freaking new. So for most people, you got to spend more time. And the other thing with it is because it's not linear, you probably won't really 
have a good gauge or accurate way of looking at your rate of gain until you're like a month or so in. Because at a month or so in, you can see like, if I divide this by the six weeks I've been at, I'm actually gaining quarter pound per week. But it might not have looked like a quarter pound per, per week. Could have been two pounds, then no pounds, then one pound, then half a pound, then you lose a pound. Like it, it fluctuates. But I always tell people like spend a month, divide it by four. Spend two months, divide it by eight. And then we really can go, okay, like now we can really see this and you're gonna need to spend six months or more gaining anyway um, if you wanna see anything uh, like really appreciable as far as muscle tissue goes. Um, so I, I like everything you threw out there. I don't typically go with the 250 to 500 just because I think um, the percentage, which you did mention, I like the percentages you mentioned. Um, I think it makes way more sense just because... Uh, you know, 500 calories to somebody who's very small female is different than 500 calories to us. So I like the the 10 to 15% right out the gate. And then usually for me, it's like a 5% bump up as we, if you're not gaining weight, we bump it up five, not gaining weight, bump it up five until we get in that trend. And then usually once you get that trend of slow gains, you really don't got to do much. It's just, just keep training hard. Um, I think that's one of the more boring things about gaining for people is they're like, all right, coach, what do we adjust this week? And we're like, nothing. Everything's going perfect. Keep training your ass off. Like, we're doing great. Um, and people just want change, you know? So. Yeah. 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 I think, um, to add a little bit to that, I think, um, we don't, we don't, we don't always work in a vacuum, right? There are some people who can be like, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and that's it. I know that's going to work. That's what my experience, my body and the science says, right? But sometimes it's really, really, um, empowering and kind of, encouraging when you do a big cut like you said and it gives you motivation to like train harder mm -hmm. and do better and be like hey i saw what i look like this year i want to look even better in two years and, and if you do it right you will like 100 percent um so i think you know we're not working in a vacuum and we need to keep in mind ourselves our, our time of life right things other things that are happening um and i think people forget that and and you know we do that pretty well where we're like hey let's be realistic like six months, then we'll see maybe. Yeah. And that's, you know, like that's one of my big motivations with like uh, our clients and helping them in the right way. I think that I, uh, usually guys obviously, but I get guys that ask me all the time. like, I, I want, I'm, I'm going for like your look. Like I want to like accomplish that. How do I do that? And I'm like, well, train for 12 years. And it's like, <laughs> I don't like just leave it at that. Cause I would be a dick if I did. But yeah. I often tell them like, Hey, like if you want me to be honest, hire a coach for one year of your life. That is literally a small, small fraction. It is a good investment, but if you do that, you will have enough time to go through a, 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 a decent size gaining phase and a cut because you don't have to cut for nearly as long. And you could do it either way. You could cut first, then go into a lean gaining phase. You can lean gain, then cut, whatever you want to do. But you'll learn how to do this. And then after you accomplish that like really good foundational physique and you understand how to train and all these things, at that point, you can pay for the Taylor trainers, 29 bucks a month, or you buy an ebook or you write your own programs and you just keep doing it. Because like you said, after you do it once, you learn a lot, you get into the lifestyle, you get motivated, you'll keep stacking those years and you'll be able to really develop something. Cause it's actually crazy. Cause now I look at some pictures that I see or videos that we film and I'm like, holy shit, like I'm kind of jacked when I'm training. Like obviously when you put a hoodie on as a natural, you don't really look that crazy, but I'm like, damn, I'm kind of jacked. And I think about it. I'm like, I remember getting so frustrated way back. But now I just, I literally have trained every week minus maybe a few weeks for travel. But even then it's like three or four days in a row. I don't train over a decade. Like mm -hmm. it's crazy. And it's like, that's ultimately what really does build something that like is easy to say. Cause it's so easy for me to maintain it now. And it's because of that. Right. Um, and I think that's the big kicker, but, um, yeah, we're going to wrap th this up here because I know we're, we're running out of time, but, um, I think that was a really good topic to cover on uh, or finish on. And I think we, really did well covering those topics. And I actually really like this like natural way of just kind of diving through them. So um, for everybody listening, uh, we'll, we'll be doing these again once a month and we're going to take a more casual conversation approach to these. So if you have any specific topics you want us to cover, um, there's a form in the description. It's the, uh, the Q and a form, go ahead and fill that out, but just tell us it's for, uh, the, the research-based podcast or the, the podcast with B Rob, Brandon Roberts. Um, you can put it in there. And if there's a topic that you are seeing a lot of in the industry, or you hear people talking about the science quote unquote, and you're wondering about it and you want us to cover it, we will do it on this podcast. So drop that in there. Um, Brandon, do you have any final words, anything you want to add before we go? No, nah, I'm good, man. This was fun. Um, yeah, drop us some questions. 
I think I'm more, I'm doing a lot of science and less coaching. So it's nice to get some like in the industries, we see this because I don't like, I'm not paying attention as much to the mm-hmm. industry as I used to. So it's, you know, drop your questions. Yeah. Absolutely, man. Um, well, guys, go check out the blog, tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash blog, because a lot of this gets goes there. Brandon's putting out an article every single month there, too. Um, leave us a five-star rating and review, and we'll catch you next time.